So for those of you who were not here last week, which I think it might be most of us uh, this morning, I had the privilege of listening to Sh- uh, Sean Radke's sermon. That was a friend of mine that filled in for me. The sermon isn't out, uh, online yet, so you won't be able to check it out yet and haven't if you missed it last week. But I was able to listen to it, and I enjoyed it so much that I decided I'd keep preaching on it. Okay, so I wanted to take that and kind of use that as a springboard. So for those of you who weren't here, some of this might seem um, a little bit out there. But uh, I, I, So I promise that if it seems out there and you're wondering, well, are we ever going to get back to the household series? Whatever happened to that? Uh, I am eventually going to come back to that series on the household. We will return to that. But I've been trying as much as possible with my crazy schedule uh, as of late to stay as faithful to the Lord and what he's leading me to preach on. So um, it didn't feel right. Again, I know I've said that already once. It didn't feel right to jump back into the household series. So I'm trying to um, stay focused on God and preach what he's having me preach week by week, uh, which is uh, sometimes uh, a little bit crazy as far as schedules go. But here we are. So last week, you all had your eyes opened if you were here, or at least your Bibles were open to the biblical reality of the divine counsel, which can be a confusing thing in and of itself. But if you didn't catch the main point or weren't here, it was that while there are spiritual beings at play in life, some good, some evil, Jesus has won the preeminent place above them all as the divine ruler. So yes, the gods, that's lowercase g, gods rule and are gathered around the capital G, God, um, as was shown in Psalm 82. That was the passage that Sean looked at. It's a little bit weird because it talks about plural, gods, um, but as Sean showed, it's lowercase g, gods, and there are Inferior. So, so what we see is we look at that passage, we realize that all of these lowercase g gods are inferior to the ultimate rule of Jesus. So when we see the injustices in the world today, we shouldn't only assume that it's the work of human hands. Okay. What we start to see as we think about the spiritual worldview is that there's more going on than, than just what humans are doing. There are real spiritual forces that are at play. There are rogue spiritual beings uh, that have rebelled against the cosmic order, uh, a God's cosmic order, and are fighting against all that is good. Okay, We often just call these demons. Okay? We, we talk about angels and demons in the spiritual realm, and, and we recognize that this is true. If you don't believe me, turn on the news. Okay, You, you realize that there's a lot going on that is more than just what humans can do. Okay? Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, there, There's things where we look at stuff and we're like, I don't even know how a human could have contrived all this and made all this tied together. So what I'd like to do today is to turn to a passage uh, that Sean actually alluded to last week and show you how D- Jesus deals with such a reality of, of living in a spiritual realm. Okay, If it's true that there are lesser gods that roam the cosmos, how are we to live in light of that? Okay, If that's a fact, if, we, if the Bible says that there are angels and demons out there, what do we think of that? How, how do we navigate that? We might, we might ask ourselves... If we have began to uh, believe the lie that the only thing that exists is things that we can lay our hands on, sometimes we start to live like that, right? That if I can't touch it, it's not real. Have we given into a fundamentally materialistic worldview that discredits anything that can't pass the scientific method, right? 
This is how we tend to start to think. These are questions that we need to ask ourselves, though, as we come to terms with a spiritual worldview. Do I only believe the things that science can prove, or is there more out there than that? Do I feel things sometimes that I kind of shrug off that are actually there? Okay. And once we can answer these questions, we can uh, begin to walk in light of this spiritual worldview that the Bible gives us. Because the reality is, is that if we ignore the spiritual realm... We are refusing to come to terms with part of reality, okay? We're only seeing half of the picture if we're only admitting that what we see is what is there. We are, if we take it seriously and we recognize what's going on, we're in a sense living a lie if we're only recognizing the physical, okay? Whether consciously or subconsciously, if we will not admit that we are surrounded by a host of spiritual beings that interact with the material world, we are living a lie, okay? So let us turn to Matthew 4 and see how Jesus navigates this spiritual world that we live in. That it's not just the physical, but there's more going on here as well. So Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, or on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of God for his people. Let us pray. Father, as we come to this text of scripture that shows us a picture of things that we probably don't think about every day, We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truths that you are leading us to. Things that might not be physical as much, but maybe metaphysical as we go deeper and start to think about the deeper realities that surround us that we might not pay as much attention to. Lord, guide me and my words. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Bless us all as we open your word up to change us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, you know, one of the first things that struck me as I was reading this passage this week was the setting. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. So the location actually stood out to me because I spent the last week in the wilderness of West Texas working in the desert sun. 
So I started to resonate a little bit with Jesus going out into the wilderness. And, and when you're in such a context, you realize how undistracted you are by the scenery, especially if you've ever been to West Texas. There isn't much to see out there. In a wilderness place, you are not focusing on the beauty of nature. You're not looking at the beauty of the trees because they're not there. Or on the natural amenities of the earth. There's hardly any water there. Uh, or any such comforts that tend to appease the body. There isn't much there for you as a human being. Okay, There's a reason why you don't hardly see houses out there. It's mostly just oil rigs. That's where I was in the last week. And that's why this really stood out to me. Because in the wilderness, you confront your weakness. Okay, Your weakness to the skin-blistering sun as it beats on your back of your neck and gives you sunburn. Still recovered from that. Your, your, your weakness towards dehydration, as you have to drink way more water than you would here in southern Illinois. Your weakness in regards to energy, as the Texas sun sips your eight hours of, uh, of sleep like a cup of coffee in the morning. It's gone in no time. By lunch, you're exhausted. That's what I was feeling this week, and I'm sure Jesus was feeling something like that as he was led out into the wilderness. And oftentimes, in these moments, when our bodies grow weak... We start to turn inward, okay? And we begin to reflect um, on life in a deeper way. When you're feeling very thirsty and tired and just weak, you start to say things like, what is life? <laughs> and you reflect on the deeper things, right? In our, in our bodily desperation, we seek rebalance of our whole selves, and we start to ask better questions, right, about body and spirit and what is going on in my life. And, and yet, this is where the Spirit leads Jesus, okay? The Spirit leads Jesus to the wilderness. Now, you might think of the Spirit, when you think of him leading you places, you think green pastures, like Psalm 23 says, by the still waters. But sometimes the Spirit leads us to the wilderness. And, in, and interestingly enough, here the Spirit uh, not only leads Jesus to his destination, the wilderness, but also to the destination that has a purpose while he is there, to be tempted by the devil. Okay? Let me clarify it. I think I've made it clear, and I think the text makes it pretty clear, that the devil is the one tempting. It's not the spirit that is taking Jesus out there to tempt uh, Jesus. God does not tempt man. That's, that's what we see in Scripture. So it's not the spirit that's tempting Jesus. It's the spirit leading Jesus to be tempted by Satan. It almost feels like our Job series, doesn't it? Where God is allowing Satan to do something to Job. So, yes, the, the tempter has to ask permission from God, but yet God says, yeah, you can do that. Go ahead. So there's this permissive way of where God leads us into a period of real testing, real temptation. He's not doing it, but he's allowing us to go there. And let me ask you something, church. Have you ever felt that the Spirit has led you to such a place? Where you've been in the wilderness period, like you found yourself in such a context that couldn't be explained uh, for any other reason than that God must have put you here for such a time as this. Like the circumstances weren't just ordinarily frustrating, as life often is, but they were like divinely frustrating, if you know what I mean. Uh, like uh, uh, there was this orchestrated purpose brought about for you, for your faith, to, to, to make you stronger. You found yourself in a make-or-break situation that God had placed you in. This is where God often leads us to in order to wake us up to reality, to the full picture of what is going on in our lives. Not just what's going on in your body, but what is going on in your soul. 
So we stumble into what seems like no big deal at the time, like you're just going through life. And then all of a sudden we realize everything is connected, right? Like there's more going on behind the scenes. And you're left making a decision that at the time you might not think as much about it. But then when you reflect back on it, you realize that you were left with a decision of good or evil. If you narrowed it down to that. It didn't seem that basic at the time. It seemed way more complex. But you really had to make a decision of what is the right thing for you to do in this situation. This is where Jesus is in the wilderness. So the context here is ripe for failure, as many of us are aware, if we've been in that wilderness period. right? It it could go one way or the other. right? It's kind of like this scale. And some of you in here have been there and felt the real pressures of life in this moment where you're having to make this decision and while the temptation for you might might have not happened like it did jesus as it appears that it happened in an audible conversation right it seems that jesus really is talking with satan nevertheless as you look back on those moments in the wilderness and the temptation period would it have really made any difference at all if it was an audible conversation or not as far as the the tension that goes right it was almost like in that moment you were there and you didn't literally have two characters standing on your shoulder like the old movies where you see like there's an angel over here and a demon over here. It wouldn't have mattered if they were physically there or not. It wouldn't have mattered if you were talking with Satan face to face or not. The reality is, is you felt that tension and that was just as real whether that was there or not. Right. This is the kind of thing that I I want through this sermon for us to learn to pay more attention to as we contemplate the reality of the divine counsel, the the unseen realm that Sean was starting to unpack for us, and to realize that there's a lot more going on often than what we will recognize. Okay, the the inner internal turmoil and tension isn't a small matter that we should sh- sort of brush to the side. Okay? Western thinking, it's a problem in many ways, okay? Western thinking has failed us in many areas, but especially in this area. When we face this inner turmoil that I was just talking about, that kind of wrestling inside, the the pull between good and evil, we have found two unfortunate explanations that Western culture tries to feed to us as we're trying to wrestle with this. If you talk to anyone about this, the Western answer is either going to be we ignore the internal and intangible forces that affect us and kind of chalk it up to scientific chemical imbalances, Right, so they'll lean towards psychiatry of some sort. Like your brain's a little bit sick, there's a chemical imbalance, here's this pill, it'll get all better. Okay? You have this on one side, and then on the other side, if we don't choose this, if it's not your brain, then we will ignore still the conscience and believe that we what we feel is not really real, it's just socially constructed morality morality being pressed on you. So it's more of a psychological issue that you need to just work through and learn to ignore that part. Okay, so there's the psychiatry answer and the psychology answer, and neither of these are always false. Okay, I don't want to discredit those sciences. They're, they're legitimate sciences. As many times, they're helpful. But think of it this way. A psychiatrist and a psychologist can only be so helpful when you're dealing with an unseen, unverifiable force that is really oppressing you. Okay? When there's a spiritual dimension that's thrown in there, they don't really have much of an answer for that. Okay, If you're the person like the people in the Bible and you're talking to someone and you get this weird grumbling voice that comes from one of your friends that you think might have more going on than just their 
physical makeup, and they say that they say they are legion, and like that's not your name, and, and like there's this demonic presence that comes from them, and you go and tell someone about that, they're gonna be like, you are crazy. I don't know what you heard, but that didn't come from that person. That person's name is Jeff, and I don't know why they said that or how you heard that, but that didn't happen, right? It's kind of a, a situation where you're going to be made to feel crazy, and you're told to kind of push this thing to the side. That can't be real. That can't be legitimate. That's too spooky. That's too weird. There must be some scientific explanation that makes that completely illegitimate, and you are just maybe sick in the mind. That's the way that Western culture usually deals with the spiritual realm. It's suppression. Push it down, ignore it, get it out of the way. But this used to be more accepted here even in the West. You used to see the angel and the demon on the shoulders of Tom and Jerry whispering in their ears because it was still mostly believed, right? There was still a basic biblical worldview that was present in our culture to where it wasn't so weird to admit that there's an unseen realm out there. Okay, it, there was still a presence of the spiritual in our worldview. It wasn't a purely materialistic worldview that has no room for such a thing. But we, we've kind of moved past this now in the West. And it's hard for us to even talk about these things anymore because people start to think we're weird. Okay, But we need to resist that because when we turn to a more biblical, which actually happens to be a more Eastern way of thinking, we can simply build this into our worldview and learn to combat it, uh, th those evil forces that might come against it. We can learn to combat it instead of being completely oblivious to it or worse, in denial of it. Okay, So what I'm wanting you to get out of this is how do we become more aware of the spiritual? And once we're more aware, how do we deal with it? So we look to Jesus, right? Scripture gives us answers for these kind of questions. So how does Jesus navigate the spirit leading him on one shoulder and Satan tempting him on the other, as we kind of see in Matthew chapter 4? What does the spiritual Jesus do as he's giving a spiritual answer to a spiritual problem? Now, this is a little bit poking fun, but does he, does he burn sage? Is this the first thing that Jesus thinks of to ward off the evil spirits? Does he buy a salt rock that lights up and kind of takes the, the bad vibes away? Does he become an essential oil dealer where he can have all the potions at his fingertips and start to make a concoction for every single problem that we have? And he'll probably get that young living discount and be able to really get some good benefits back from him. No, that's not, that's not what he does. My wife deals young living, so I'm, not, I'm making fun of this, but at the same time, right? Here's what I'm trying to say. The West gives all kinds of answers that are mostly a conglomeration of New Age practices taken from Eastern thinking that are mixed with Western practices, and it's laughable a lot of times. But this isn't what Jesus does. This is not the way that Jesus combats this. It's actually a lot more simple, um, and it's laughable to our Western culture. They laugh at what Jesus does. So what Jesus does is he combats the temptation of Satan with the most powerful spell any wizard could ever contrive. What he does is he combats it with the word of God, the God spell, gospel. Right, this is the, the old English, the, the Anglo-Saxon rendering of our word gospel, if you didn't know, God spell. So, of course, now we just say gospel and we move on, not thinking about anything spiritually connected to that. We don't think of any of those implications, but it is the good news of God towards men. It is the power of God unto salvation. So maybe we should start thinking about the gospel in those kind of terms, something that is a lot more powerful than we give it credit for, something that might act somewhat like even a spell 
that would bring real power to have real change in the physical world. So what Jesus does is he uses this. He, he speaks the words of God because he realizes that the word of God substantiates reality. Right? This is, we get this all the way back in Genesis. When God speaks, things happen. Okay? Things even come into existence. So when God speaks, things align, right? When the word of God is brought, order is brought. When we speak what God has spoken, we are saying back to him the good order of reality and bringing things back to a redeemed state. We're putting the pieces of the broken puzzle back together. So order ensues when the word of God is spoken. When we're following what God made the world to be, things come together. So you can guess what the opposite of this is, right? So, so it's chaos, right? It's disorder. It's breaking away of things. It's corruption. It is Babel, okay? You know the story, Genesis 11 and Babel? The, the man, interside, uh, man enterprise, man-centered enterprise. I can't get that out. The man-centered enter, enterprise that comes together and that's very powerful, but in all the wrong ways, right? So it's not that they are nothing. It's that they are something very big, very powerful, but they're abusing, they are misusing all that God has given to them, right? So they're taking what God's stuff is, and they're saying, we're going to use this for what we want out of it, not for what God has told us to do with it. That's the misuse of the creative order. So notice here, Satan isn't coming up with unique spells. If you want to talk about it, I don't think it's that far of a stretch to think about the word of God in this kind of way. So Satan isn't coming up with unique spells. He is twisting the word of God and tempting Jesus to use God's power, his power in the word for evil. Satan's quoting scripture. Did you notice that? Okay. He is tempting Jesus with real power, and this is something that we don't often take seriously. When Satan made all of these offers to Jesus, they weren't empty offers. Okay, When he offered the nations to Jesus, he was able to deliver on that had Jesus accepted the offer. The nations were deceived at this time. They did not believe in Jesus. They were very powerful. They defeated Israel at times when Israel was faithless. Think about that, the power of the nations. And many times Christians make the mistake of believing that the demonic and evil forces cannot do anything. Right? The, the, the evil stuff out there, well, they're not really powerful. So the person who is a self-proclaimed witch in our towns, then there are those around us. I know people that say that they are a witch. We say, well, they're not really powerful. They're just deceived. They can't really do anything. Not true. Not true. There is real power in the spiritual realm when people tap into that kind of thing. So we wrongly assume here oftentimes that Satan couldn't really give Jesus the nations because they weren't his to offer. Okay, now let's think through this logic. We need to make a difference in our minds between right and power. Like the right to do something and the power to do something or the ability to do something. Satan didn't have the right to offer the nations to Jesus. They weren't Satan's by right, but he did have the power to do that. Okay, This is the seriousness that we miss with the unseen realm of the divine council. How much is actually going on that we can't see that is actually very powerful? The rulers and the principalities are not powerless. This is the Western thinking that we've actually believed in, that if, if we uh, even believe and admit that they're there, well, maybe they're there, but they don't really affect the world that we live in. That's the way that we have started to think in the West. And if they – ask yourself this. If they were 
powerless, then why did God have to confuse the languages at Babel to keep them from reaching heaven and taking it over as well as earth? Right? Do you remember what Genesis says? If I don't stop them, there's nothing that they cannot do. That's powerful. That's extremely powerful if you think about it. There's nothing that they could not do. If Satan is powerless, then why was he called in Ephesians the prince of the powers of the air? Satan's powerful is what the Bible tells us. If Satan was powerless, then why did Christ have to disarm the rulers and principalities, as it says in Colossians? You don't disarm something that's powerless. You fight against it. right? You have to fight against Satan and the demonic because they are powerful. Okay, That's the point I want us to catch from this. There's a lot to the spiritual realm that we say, well, that's nothing. It is something. Okay? The implication that we take from this is that the spiritual realm affects the material and physical world more than we give it credit for. There's a lot going on that we aren't acknowledging. And the point I'm making is that if we believe that evil is powerless simply because we are Christians, like it has no effect on us, then we are deceived and not paying attention to the truth of Scripture. Okay? The thing that makes evil so evil is the very abuse of power. Okay? It's not that they don't have power. It's that they do have power, and they abuse the power that they have. That is what evil is by definition. Okay, It's powerful, and that is why it must be resisted at all costs, because it will win if good does not combat it. Okay, So if Christians don't recognize that you have to fight it, and that they say, well, it's powerless, it, can't, it has, has nothing on me, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. It must be fought against. We must war against it. Not flesh and blood, but we are warring against something here, okay? And it's the spiritual, the spiritual realm that is uh, fighting against all that is good in the world. Now, the example that Jesus gives here in Matthew 4 and the, the biblical command for dealing with temptation is not passive acceptance of an evil world. We don't just kind of throw our hands up in resignation. No, it is resistance to the evil in the world. That's the Christian pattern. If you believe the Bible says that Satan wins over this world in the end and Christians somehow get snatched up to heaven while the world burns, then you've missed something huge in Scripture. Namely, the reconciliation, the, the redemption of all things, the fact that God loves the earth, that he's redeeming people, and that he's trying to, he is striving to redeem what he has created, and he's not giving up on it. You've missed the victory in Jesus and how he has disarmed the rulers and the principalities. You've missed that Jesus is the rightful king who has bound Satan. You've missed that Jesus has overcome evil by the blood of the cross and the word of not his testimony, your testimony. You're speaking of the good news of Jesus and what he's done. That's the power that we have that goes and rules in the world. Okay? That's how the kingdom of God grows through your testimony, through you being a Christian, through you resisting and fighting back the evil that is in the world. Okay, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is what James tells us. And Jesus gives us the perfect example of this in Matthew 4. What does it say in verse 10 and 11? Look with me at verse 10 and 11. So Satan's coming against Jesus, right? He's pushing back this back and forth. And then uh, Satan tempts him one last time in verse 9. And Jesus responds in verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, it says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then verse 11, what's it say? Then the devil left him. Then the devil left him. That's the formula. That's the secret sauce right there. Seems really simple, right? It's a lot more complicated than that. 
So, but so, so Jesus doesn't say, man, I, I must just be hangry, fasting for 40 days, and I'm just feeling this temptation because my, my body's weak and I, I'm just a little bit hungry. No, that's not the way that Jesus combats this. He doesn't start looking towards the physical and saying, well, there's a physical explanation for this and the things that I'm feeling and push away the spiritual because that's what we tend to do, isn't it? When we're tempted, we try to find some physical explanation. I didn't get enough sleep last night. I, I haven't ate enough. My sugar's low, yada, yada, yada. There's, there's a thousand things we could turn to. Very rarely do we say, be gone, Satan, and confront the spiritual realm directly and fight against it, and then Satan leaves is the pattern that we see in Scripture. Resist the devil, and he not might flee from you. He will flee from you. Now, So resistance, fighting back the powerful evil influences in the world, is the Christian way. Okay, we must fight. And if we miss that the resistance is against invisible powers, catch this, the, the, the gods of our age, then we, what we end up doing is resisting people and, res, uh, and rendering souls for Satan to have. Okay? So if we're, if we're saying that this person is the enemy rather than the force behind them, then we start rendering them as, oh, that's just Satan's person. This happens a lot with politics. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so, so that person becomes the enemy rather than the force behind that person. So then we say, well, that person, I'm not going to name names, but you all have someone's name in your mind probably when you start to think of politics. And you, in your mind, you start to say, well, that's Satan's person. Why, why couldn't it be Jesus's person? You see what I'm saying? When we start to fight against people rather than the, the powers and the principalities behind the people, what we do is we give Satan more people. You can have him, Satan. What I want is you to have him and take him. What, what better plan could Satan have than making you think that way? That to, to where you just give people over to Satan to where they are not worth saving anymore. Right? They are beyond saving. What better plan could Satan have than to convince Christian that the nations are rightfully his and we don't need to fight back against the evil in the world because they, the, the, the Christians, will somehow be raptured out of the world and, and live on somewhere other place while we give the world over to Satan. That's what he wants. He wants us to say the evil will inherit the earth. That's what he wants. He wants us to just hand the world over to him. And many times Christians have done this. Well, we're just going to get out of here. The world's going to go to pot anyway. We're going to leave. They can have it. Why? Where do we see the biblical picture that says that to where we give the world to Satan and Jesus somehow takes us off to some other place? That's not the picture that we have in Scripture. The picture that we have is, no, there's a war going on. Don't throw your hands up in the air and go hide in a bunker. Resist it. Fight back. Say, no, this world is Jesus' world. He is the king here. Satan is the one that is bound. Why are we not believing like that? Why are we not speaking that truth, that God's spell, to the evil powers of the world? Now, I say all this like it's the easiest thing in the world to do. It isn't. It's, it's way more complicated than that. But what I'm trying to do is help us to start thinking more about this in a nuanced way to where we really do know how to navigate these kind of conversations, this kind of thing, and move forward. So, so fighting an invisible force, it's not easy. It will leave you exhausted in every way. Okay, When you start to think about these things, it will drain you. Anyone who's ever dealt with a heavy situation where there's spiritual things going on behind it, you know that, don't you? You, you know that feeling that you get where you're just done. Like, oh my goodness. And, and there's good news, actually, that we can see in this text uh, uh, right here at the end of this. You notice that an angel comes to Jesus's aid. Another weird spiritual thing that Western thinking doesn't really have a category for. But here scripture tells us that when you fought this fight, you've done the right thing. There's actually some hope that there's some angelic presence, too, not just 
demonic presence is not just all bad in the world, but there's actually good too, where the angels come and minister to Jesus. That's a beautiful picture if you think about it, isn't it? Angels coming to minister to, all of all people, Jesus. Okay. Now think about this. So, so, so what the spiritual worldview shows us is that it's not just the presence of evil in the world out there, but there's also good forces that are on your side as well. The, the angel comes and ministers uh, to Jesus, uh, not just because he's the savior of the world. Okay, He is that, but think of it this way. The, the, the angels come and minister to Jesus, not just because he's God, but because he's a human. Jesus and his divinity doesn't need help. He doesn't need ministering to. But in his humanity, he does. He needs help. Okay, That's, that's the picture of humanity, that we are in a, a place where we are weak and that we need help. And there's angelic presence that can actually come in, in a real way. I can't even give you an explanation for this fully because I, I don't understand it. But this is what the Bible says, right? Somehow this angel comes and ministers to Jesus where he's emotionally, psychologically, He's spiritually exhausted, and the angel comes and ministers to him. And what this shows us is that just as evil spirits wreak havoc in the world and seek to destroy us, there's also angelic faithful hosts that surround the capital G God who are not bowing their knee to Satan, but are still at work bringing order and healing the world with us. So it's not just us out here that are fighting the fight with Jesus. There are good faithful angelic hosts that are still working with us on our side. So with all that said, as we look at Matthew 4, it's just one of those things where you're like, this, I don't even have the categories for this. Like my mind doesn't even think like this. But what we need to do is somehow bring this back to the world that we live in because it's the same world and start to somehow mesh this picture of the spiritual worldview with the world that you live in to where you now know how to navigate these things because guess what? You're going to be tempted. You're going to be in the wilderness, and you're going to be tempted. And my exhortation to you is for you to begin to foster a spiritual sensitivity to the powers and principalities that oppress us in various seasons, and also the times that you're being ministered to, and to be appreciative towards that, to, to be grateful for the times that angels are somehow ministering to you after a very exhausting season. Okay, You don't need to think like... it. It was just I was sleepy last night when those kind of things happen, right? Is it just that you didn't get enough sleep last night? Or is there more going on that your soul hadn't considered yet? Could it be that you're being tempted to rebel against the cosmic created order of the universe and your physical weakness is merely just the bait of the gods? Where they're trying to use that tiredness, that hunger, whatever it is, to say, well, this is why you're feeling this way. That's what Satan would want in that moment. Push it off and say, well, it's, there's a physical, a physical explanation. Couldn't be that I'm actually being oppressed in this moment. Don't go there. Think about it spiritually. Think about it from the biblical worldview that Scripture gives us. Don't believe the lie also that only very evil people are oppressed by the demonic world. Okay? Who is tempted in this picture? Jesus. Do you know anyone more holy than Jesus? Do you know anyone more righteous than Jesus? So don't tell yourself that it's only the really, really bad people, the, the borderline Christians. You all know those Christians, right? Where they're like, they're barely Christian, but they are still Christian, just hanging on by a thread. Don't think that it's just those people that the demonic oppresses, that comes to. It comes to the righteous, too. 
it will oppress anyone that it can. Okay, that's that's the way that the world works. We're all in this together in the spiritual realm, all navigating it together. It's not just the really bad people. It's not just the really good people. The fact of the matter is, is we are all surrounded at the moment, probably, by angelic hosts, probably demonic hosts out there that are that are going on. It is a haunted world that we live in. This is the world that we are needing to come to terms with and start to know how to navigate. So learn to recognize spiritual attack as weird as it might be to our Western minds and then follow Jesus's lead. Look at what Jesus has done and what how, how he navigates this kind of thing. Matthew 4 paints not only the per, per, picture of a perfect resistance, so Jesus shows us how to fight back, but it also gives us the picture of our Savior, okay, the, the one who has done it perfectly for us. It shows us the one who endured temptation sinlessly beyond what we could ever imagine, and he did it for you. That's why Jesus did it in that moment. He didn't have to come to earth and deal with that. He did it for you because he knew that you were going to do it at one time, and guess what? You were going to blow it. That's why he did it for you. He went there for you in your stead. By doing what he did, even unto death, right? Remember on Jesus' last moments, What's being tempted? Or what's happening? He's being tempted. Satan's coming. You don't have to do this. Don't do this. That's why Jesus did it for you. He was thinking of you in those moments when Satan was tempting him to the point of sweating blood. He went there for you. We need to recognize this when we're in that moment of temptation, that we have someone that's been there for us. And yes, we're going to blow it at times, but after we blow it, we need to recognize that it wasn't all up to us. Our salvation doesn't go on our own shoulders. There's someone who has already went through it for us and done it for us. And, and, and through his death, he has made a way of salvation for those who would otherwise be damned because of their sin. That's the reality. Because of your failure to resist temptation, you have a rightful uh, place in God's mind for damnation. But because of what Jesus has done, you don't have to live that life. You can live in freedom because of what Jesus has done. So that good news, that God's spell, we might say, is the enchanting force that redeems the world. It really is. That's, that's the news that we go and tell everyone about that starts to really change things in the world we live in, where the physical world even starts to have spiritual change that has a following uh, a physical change. The, the incarnate word of God is the only ploy of resistance that we have against the gods, the lowercase g gods, who corrupt justice and show partiality to the wicked. Our political system, if you think it's corrupt, I think it is. I think most people these days think it is. The only answer that we have is not getting a Christian in office. It's not, sorry. It's actually using the word of God, faithfully living out our lives, and seeing the implications grow out into where we start to see change on a, a wider spectrum than just our own lives, okay? It's not just this quick move that we get in. There's a lot more going on to the war, and if you think it's as simple as that, you're deceived. I'm sorry. But that's the way that we think a lot of times. So, so what we need to recognize is that when the psalmist says in Psalm 82, Arise, O God, judge the earth, some of the things that you might be thinking too, for you shall inherit all the nations. You're longing the same things that the psalmist longs for. But he longs for the day when God himself would come in the personhood of Jesus and judge the nations in righteousness. We've seen it, though. We've seen the answer to that prayer. And that great hope uh, that we have in the face of temptation is that Jesus has already come. 
That he's done this work for us. That he has already established his kingdom. He's growing it out. It's not culminated. No, there's still a lot of work to do. But he has established his kingdom as king of the earth. And he is putting every enemy under his feet to where even death itself is being abolished and swallowed up to the victory of the blood on the cross. That's the good news that we have in the face of temptation, church. This is the thing that we need to think of when we start to think that we are tempted. Not just a physical explanation. We need to think of a spiritual explanation and approach this the same way that Jesus does with a spiritual, well-orbed view that says that there's a physical world and there's a spiritual world. And there's an answer that I have in this moment. And the answer is to bring the word of God to spread light on the situation, this dark situation, and move forward. Be gone, Satan. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is the way that we march forward, church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we can't do any of this without you. Forgive us for the ways that we have tried to fight spiritual problems with physical answers. Forgive us for the ways that we have grown too materialistic in our thinking and haven't haven't considered the picture that you've given to us in Scripture that is much more spiritual, that is much more metaphysical and deeper than we often give credit for. I pray that you would open our eyes. This is an often repeated motif in Scripture, that you open eyes of the blind Lord. I pray that if there's any spiritual blindness in this room this morning, that you would open our eyes, give us sight so that we might be able to see more that is going on, give us a vision of the spiritual realm that is able to handle it in a biblical and faithful way. Lord, we want to give you glory today for the work that you have done that we could not do in resisting temptation beyond any place that we ever could have resisted. Lord, you've done what we couldn't do, and we thank you that you have won a victory over that so that we might be saved. We place our faith in you today, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us continue to worship this morning by standing and singing together, Onward, Christian Soldier. Onward, Christian Soldier. You'll find this on hymn number 132. Please stand with me as we sing together. Mm -hmm. 